Vegas Gang Podcast for August 12, 2010. Let me go around the virtual table and introduce uh, my co-hosts here. Um, we have Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Hey! <laughs> Love that. Audio goodness. Uh, we have Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hey there. Um, my name's Hunter Hillegas. I'm at RateVegas.com. We are hoping that Mr. Jeff Simpson will join us um, in mid-gang. Uh, mid um, for those that are listening, uh, hopefully it's sounding a lot better than it usually does. We've sort of changed up the way that we record and produce the show to use um, the using Skype now and things on our end at least sound a lot better. So we're hoping that it's going to mean that it's going to sound a lot better for y'all. And, um, yeah, so that's the plan going forward. Um, before we get into some topics, I wanted to do a couple of quick announcements. Um, a reminder on Vegas Podcast of Palooza, it's October 30th at the fabulous Flamingo on the Las Vegas Strip. You can come and hear us do our thing. You can uh, hear... The guys from The Strip do their um, interview-style show, and the always charming 500 by Midnight, Tim and Michelle as well. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. After the three shows, we're going to have a little reception-type doohickey where you can come and uh, harass us in person and, you know, <clears throat> unload all of those all those angry vibes that you've been waiting to share. <laughs> um, we're really looking forward to that. So please, yeah, me too. Yeah, it's going to be Me great. too, and I'm going to try my best not to get 86 this time. Yeah. <laughs> so It's going to be, be a lot of fun. Um, yeah. We are very grateful to the folks at Harris and the Flamingo for hosting us this time around. It's, it's they're, uh, they're really going all out to make it great. We have been threatening um, some room specials for a while, and th they're taking a little bit longer than we thought to get organized, but um, they're right around the corner. And the reason they're taking longer than we had hoped is because we're trying to cram some more good stuff into them. So um, thanks for being patient. Uh, if you haven't already booked a room, um, you know there's going to be some good deals. So uh, I know that the 30th of October isn't all that far away. So start making your plans. We should have those room um, room rate offers coming real soon, and you can get all that info at VegasPodcastTabalooza.com, uh, and I'm sure that we'll probably um, link and write to that stuff from other places as well. Um, one other quick note, um, people that know me or listen to the show know that I'm a big fan of the iPad. I am giving away an iPad. Uh, the details are over at uh, RateVegas.com slash blog over on the right-hand side. You can um, link to all the info about winning yourself an iPad, which I will pick the winner at Vegas Podcast Palooza. So you don't have to be there to win, but um, uh, if you are there, you can uh, collect your prize uh, right there, then and there if you want. Mm. Um, anyway, check it out if you'd like an iPad. Uh, anybody can win, except for the guy that won last time. So uh, good deal. We are joined today by Alex from the El Cortez in downtown Las Vegas. They made some news a couple of months ago with a very interesting competition. Um, they invited interior designers from around the state. I believe they had to be uh, have at least one person that was licensed in Nevada um, to help design new suites at the property. And basically, 
the uh, entrants submit uh, their proposals. They are judged by a panel of um, esteemed designers and uh, and management of the property. And then um, the winners go through uh, – <clears throat> well, actually, Alex, why don't we let you explain exactly how that process works okay. and where you are. Yeah, no, I mean, you pretty much had it uh, right on the head. You, we had put out a call for entries at the beginning of the summer – to basically any designer who lives or works in Nevada. So not necessarily all designers are licensed in the state of Nevada, but they live or work in the state of Nevada. Um, But they all are licensed designers. And we just opened up a call for entries in partnership with the World Market Center and Las Vegas Design Center um, to kind of just throw some ideas out there and see if people wanted to design suites for the El Cortez. And we're going to be unveiling them, you know, during our 70th anniversary celebration because in 2011 it's our 70th anniversary. So we're going to be unveiling them during that year. But uh, really it's just been a design competition in partnership with the World Market Center and Design Center. It's also a little bit of a fundraiser for Keep Memory Alive, uh, which is a downtown charity. And um, we had... uh, Overall, we had 18 submissions, so that's 18 different teams submitted designs. And uh, from those 18, we all, our judging panel, which included like Todd Avery Lenahan and uh, Todd, uh, Carrie Vogel and Brian Thornton and just like this amazing panel of judges, Kate Bennett from Vegas Magazine, um, we whittled them through and we had four semifinalists and then four finalists. So now we have four finalists with the states that we have four finalists. We're meeting with them now, and they're going to be building out uh, a suite each. And once they build theirs out, we're going to have another round of judging where we go through and decide which one of those we like the best, and then the one designer out of those will be able to do six additional suites. So have you announced the the finalists yet, or is that... We have. We have, do. Okay. We have announced. Uh, so last Thursday, I, or two Thursdays ago, we announced our four finalists um, for amazing teams, really, really cool designs, and we're in the planning process with them now. We've just started meeting with them this week to plan out the timeline and when everything's going to be ready to go. I just think this is such an interesting idea. I mean, look, obviously, you know, hotels have to go through redesign processes for their rooms every X number Mm -hmm. of years anyway, but to turn it into a competition and also to get some really amazing judges to, to look at the stuff, where did this idea come from? Um, you know, it really came from our discussions of um, what to do coming into our 70th year, uh, how, how you know, a hotel remains over 70 years. I think we have to be pretty adaptable and um, pretty forward-thinking. And so, and we also have to interact with our community and, you know, be good neighbors. So there's so many amazing resources we have right around the corner. We wanted to kind of be able to take advantage of them, I guess, is kind of where the idea came from, is how do we use all these amazing neighbors that we have um, to help bring the El Cortez into its 70th year. And um, rather than just hiring one designer, uh, we put it out there to all of them and kind of let them decide for themselves who ends up being the best design. Um, Now, you're one of the judges, correct? Yes. Okay. So I may, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what that process has been like. And, uh, you know, without naming any names, 
Um, were there any entries that uh, were maybe head scratchers or um, I'm sure you got some really great stuff? <laughs> like and particularly probably... perplexing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we definitely had uh, designs all over the place. And they range from, you know, designers who are just novices. So we had some design students. Uh, and then we had some really established uh, designers that, you know, put some really creative and amazing ideas through. Um, nothing that was really horrendous. We had a couple of, um, you know, just, you know, there was really no bad design. I don't want to say anything bad, but uh, there were also some that definitely stood out. So we really, and we weren't even looking for anything in particular. We didn't put any limitations on the designers themselves. We didn't want to create, uh, stifle any creativity. So uh, all we said is that you have a $20,000 budget and you can't knock down any walls. You just have to work, you know, inside uh, the box, basically, that you're given. And take it from there. So we had a couple of really interesting ones, um, some that didn't necessarily fit with the El Cortez vibe that really took it out there, but, you know, some great creativity as well. So I think what we ended up with were four really, really cool, awesome designs. Uh, I have one more question, and then I'm going to uh, let my cohorts here uh, see if they've got anything for you. I'm just curious, okay. is your impression as part of this process, do you feel like you are going to end up with something that's more interesting and I guess in a word better than you would have if you just hired a random designer to do the entire project. Completely, absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, um, I think every any hotel, you know, they have designers that they typically work with or they get into, you know, a routine of, you know, a, a, a you know, just kind of a design that they've been going along with. They don't really want to separate one room type from, you know, what else they have going on in the rest of the hotel and you know I think that by having this kind of a competition we really opened our eyes to some possibilities that we would otherwise not have been aware of you know just uh, I mean painting from painting like the floor and ceiling just like metallic gold and like it's like that kind of a design which we are going to build out which will be really beautiful and amazing we definitely wouldn't have thought of that you know Um, I think the process is definitely different we could see, you know, the amazing designers that we have in town to use that we wouldn't necessarily have, you know, thought about hiring to begin with. So I think it was definitely helpful. I think it opened our eyes to some great possibilities. Well, I, like I said at the top, I mean, I just think it's really a very creative idea. Um, I think it's very, yeah, super cool idea. Yeah, we're so excited by it. It's been so much fun. This This has been like a super fun project to be a part of. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, Dave, Chuck, do you guys have anything that you wanted to ask? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, being down there, I noticed there's a real synergy growing between the downtown and the arts community and the Al Cortez, mm-hmm. you know, with emergency arts. So could you just share a little bit of that with people? Because I think it's really cool. Absolutely. I mean, I think that our mantra looking forward is really to be a good neighbor and to be a part of our community. Um, we definitely have a huge sense of community here. Uh, with, in terms of emergency arts, we actually own the building and, um, it, it's like a very close partnership that we have with them. We're definitely a family. The emergency arts is part of the Al Cortez family. And, um, we, we think that, you know, that's kind of where downtown is headed is obviously we have the arts district and we have the entertainment district and, um, you know, that those are our neighbors and we really want that to succeed because if our neighbors fail, you know, that's not good for, us as a hotel. If downtown doesn't work, you know, it's not good for any hotel as an individual. So um, we really want our neighbors to thrive. We really want the neighborhood to thrive. And we're just trying to be 
good neighbors. We're so excited by like the this new life that is coming into uh, the streets nearby. So if in any any way that we can interact with them, I think we try to be a part of it. I have uh, I have a question I'd like to ask, um, Alex. I, 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 let me start this by by saying kudos to your entire team. Uh, the transformations at El Cortez of, over the past few years have been tremendous. Uh, it's it's a really great place to come, and it's a lot more friendlier and fun and exciting than it ever ever has been, except maybe back sixty five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thank but you. That's a huge compliment. Yeah, Thank but you. I'm, I'm only 40 years old, so I can't really uh, count for those other. <laughs> tourists. For that. Yeah. Uh, so, as as the uh, the tourist guy here, uh, I want to ask a question for for my readers, which would be: mm-hmm. uh, When will we be able to stay in these rooms, and uh, how will we know that those these are those rooms when we book them on the website? Will there be a specific name attached to them? Uh, and and yeah. finally, what what do you think the price points are going to be? Okay, that's it. I mean, that's definitely an awesome question. We're hoping that everything, the first floor will be built out by uh, the end of the year. And so we're going to invite people to begin staying in them actually as early as uh, January, February of 2011. And um, we'll be inviting the public to come take a look at the floor designs. And in that early, that first quarter is when we're going to be choosing the winner out of those and building out the other ones. But those four will still remain open to the public. Um your question in terms of price point, uh, I think that we're not trying to gouge anybody here. It's not, you know, I think that we're going to remain pretty true to our standard of value. I think it might be comparable to maybe a cabana suite room. We haven't actually decided the exact price point, but I would say maybe $10 higher than our uh, typical suites here. So we're not going to really be, you know, departing from that value. Uh, and I'm sorry, what was the last question? Oh, how will we know? We'll give yeah, you a separate how to book it. Uh, we're definitely going to have them featured on our website and on our booking engine. Um, it's going to be a separate featured suite that you can uh, choose to uh, reserve. And all of them are going to be recognized. All the designers are going to be recognized. Each suite is going to have a plaque um, by the door with the design name and the designer's names. And uh, people, you know, choose their favorites. They'll be able to request a specific room. Um, I think people like having the choice of, you know, either the rec room or the big sleep, whichever room, you know, suits their personality the best. Very cool. Uh, I have, I have one, one final question. Is there going to be a, is there going to be one big birthday party for the El Cortez? Uh, we are planning that right now. As soon as we get the final, we're fleshing out all those details. I, I wish I could announce it right now, but we're fleshing those details out, and I'd love to talk to you about that as soon as we have that uh, announced. I would love to. It's Can't really going to be a whole year of celebration, uh, and we have a bunch of stuff planned, and we're so excited to celebrate 70 years. It, that's, and, I mean, that's a big milestone. So there will be a big birthday party, and you all will all be invited for sure. Woo-hoo! <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, be fun. congratulations. Um, it's a Thank great, you. very cool concept and idea. Can't wait to see, uh, the results of it. And, um, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So, all right. Um, let's see. We've got some different stuff here. Um, I think maybe we'll start with the, with Dave and the Baccarat study. Um, oh, is that okay? <laughs> That's great. This was—I'm just telling you—this was fun, and for 
a long time. I'm like, I'm working on this longitudinal micro study, which sounds really impressive. And it was a lot of fun to do. And by which I mean, it was not a lot of fun. So but it was, it's good to finish it. You wrote a post on your blog, diascast.com, talking a little mm-hmm. bit about um, the study and you linked to a piece in the Las Vegas business press. Yeah. Um, why don't you... Real quickly, tell us a little bit about the study, what was included, all that kind of, you know, sort of the, the, <clears throat> the major points. And also, you know, what, what did you find? What, what are the takeaways? Why should people be interested in this? Yeah, you know, pretty much the gaming industry in Nevada is really tying itself to the game of Baccarat and High Roller Baccarat. And we've seen that this month. Well, in the June results that just came out, Bach Handle dropped a 3.5%. Per, um, after Bach, Bach hold, I mean, dropped a three and a half percent, which usually it's around 12. As a result, revenues took a real nosedive. And there's, I kind of heard some people running around like Chicken Little. This was totally expected. And I've been saying this since about like March, that this was going to happen sooner or later. One of the things that I wanted to do by in doing this micro study is show people this is what happens in the field at a real bunch of Baccarat tables in a single casino over the course of six years when they offer the game. So in Nevada, we don't break de- We don't have results available by individual casinos. They're aggregated into jurisdictions like the Strip, uh, downtown, etc. So I looked at Atlantic City and picked out a casino and looked at their Bach play over six and a half years. Okay. So oh, you want me to? Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm just you know what what were your um. My impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression of what you found was that you know there there is an increasing reliance on on the game, which I think is kind of interesting. And, um, and I'm curious. I have a couple questions related to that. What do you think are the potential consequences of gaming win being more reliant on? You know, I don't want to say non-mainstream, but you know. Let's be honest. Baccarat is not blackjack. I mean, you, you know, we may we may have some friends that like to play baccarat, but in the general sort of zeitgeist of gaming, especially um, with American customers, it doesn't seem like a mainstream game to me, at least. Well, it's you know, it's good for the customers because it's a game where they actually can win a lot of money. It's really bad for the casinos. I'll give you one example. In two thousand four, this casino that I looked at for Atlantic City was doing on average about 7 million or so in handle in total amounts bet a month in Baccarat spread over four tables. Um, that remained pretty constant in November. They made $1.6 million in their Baccarat room from the game. December, they actually booked more money, but you know, in November, they booked about $7.5 million worth of bets, made about $1.6 million in revenues. December, they booked $10.3 million in bets, which was the most they did for the whole period. And they actually lost more than $600,000, like had a negative win. So that just goes to show how volatile the game is. Another thing I looked at was the win percentage, the you know, the hold by month, and that just was all over the board. There was four months, pretty much from July to October of 2004, they had either negative or below average hold. So pretty much they had a really rough summer in 2004 at this casino in Baccarat. Came back in November, but it was even worse in December. And it's interesting because there was, you know, just for a lot of the period I studied, 
there was, um, you know, the hold was lower than average. Some months it was higher than average. The highest hold that I got for the whole period was November of 2009. They held 86.1% of all the money bet, which is really good. I mean, pretty much people were basically, they would have been better off just writing a check to the casino and saving their time. Yeah. <laughs> in the weird thing is in April that year though, they had a negative hold percentage to 75.1%. So in that year, the casino would have been better off writing a check to all their players and just closing down the pit for the month because they lost, they did negative 75%. Wow. So if somebody gambled $100, the casino lost that $100 and then lost another $75 on top of it. So they did awful. And it was after this, well, this is really during the period where they were winding down their play. What happened is the casino really, even though they had done some major expansion and invested a lot in trying to build up their high-end play, in around 2007, they decided to stop offering a lot of high-end play. And after the fall of 2007, it really started to fall off the map. And this year, half the months, they don't even have the, the box room open, which is a real shame. Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering what's causing all this um, extra Baccarat play. Are these, are these, you know, customers from regions where Baccarat is significantly more popular, like maybe Asian customers, where Baccarat is really the pri- principal game that's offered in, you know, casinos in Macau, uh, or are the, or is Baccarat just becoming more popular? Well, in Vegas, I think it's a mix of both. Definitely, it's um, a lot of Asian players, but it's also a lot of other players who are just warming up to the game, you know. And the thing is, the you know the I think probably what's happening is the total amount bet on Baccarat is going up a little bit, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I don't want to give a number. But we'll say, for the sake of argument, five percent which ordinarily wouldn't be that big a deal because everything would be going up at about five percent, but everything else is going down by about ten percent. So it really stands out, you know, the fact that it's kind of going in the opposite direction. Pretty much, you know, and what I'm I'm doing today, what I'm trying to do today is to crunch the June numbers going back from June of 2004 all the way up through this month. And it looks like it's just, you know, really what's happening is we had a really disastrous Baccarat hold number. It was 3.5%, which just totally put the revenue picture in the toilet for the month. And underlying really negative financials too. I mean, it's it's really depressing when you look at it. Just watching the slot handle keep on dropping, meaning the people are playing less and less slots. You know, for this so for this week we this uh, month on the strip, it looks like there is an increase in slot play because slot revenue went up by about one and a half percent. The problem is the whole percentage went up. So really, people played less; they just lost more. So not a lot of good news for the for Vegas gambling this uh, month. Chuck, I wanted to ask you, um, sort of cycle back to what I was asking a minute ago with regards to Baccarat and it's sort of its position as a as a game that's in sort of the the mainstream of the I don't know to use my same phrase as like I said sort of gambling public. Do you? As as you talk to people that are reading Vegas Tripping, I mean, I know that we have some mutual friends that Baccarat is their favorite game, but I I I'm still feels like that's more of a minority. That most people that I know that go that go play table games, you know, blackjack is obviously very very popular, followed by maybe craps and roulette. How, do you feel like Baccarat is on the rise with the folks that you talk to and that read the site? 
Well, I think the awareness of it is on the rise. People know more about it. It's they know it's uh, it's got that James Bond mystique, and it's very popular with uh, Asian players. Uh, you know, people don't run around talking about natural nines. You know, that's not part of the the uh, the lingo of of standard. Uh, you know, gamblers. People would know much more about big slicks and pocket rockets and things like that. You know, poker is the American game. Uh, the variations, the carnival games, the table game versions of that are probably still more popular in terms of people knowing how to play them, three-card poker, etc. I don't think uh, anybody fully understands how to deal a, a Baccarat game except for maybe – a dealer themselves, you know, the, the rules of when to hit and when not to hit are quite arcane and bizarre. Uh, so I, I, I don't, you know, maybe I think the, the interest is a little higher, but the actual, you know, lay are of, uh, you know, regular tourists going into, to hit the Baccarat tables. I don't think that's really happening. I do have a question for Dave though. And I'm not sure if this it's possible to even break this out because of the economy. But I'm wondering if he may have seen how the westernization of Macau had affected the numbers in Atlantic City and or Nevada, Baccarat play, since give or take 2006. This is a really good question, and I've actually had somebody asking me this today. Um, pretty, and they're like, well, why would people want to come to Vegas if they can gamble in Macau? I think what it comes down to is that if you've got somebody you know, playing VIP Baccarat in Macau, if you're a casino that also has – if you are a company that also has a casino in Vegas, it is in your best interest to get them to Vegas because of the tax rates. You know, Macau, it's a 38 or 39 percent tax rate, whereas in Vegas, it's about 7 percent. So really – that's a ton of money. If you figure a player might have a theoretical loss of $2 million over a weekend, yeah. you know, that's a difference between $800,000 and $160,000 in, in taxes there. So I think that's going to keep the, you know, that kind of entrepreneurial jurisdictional tax rate stuff is going to keep Vegas relevant. You know, um, don't know how much of the Atlantic city play was coming from that part of the world to begin with. Definitely some, but clearly for whatever reason, this one casino has been really impacted by it, by either the recession or just them getting cold feet about the game. Because as it, you know, is proven here empirically, it is a very volatile game that if you're looking at the bottom line, you know, month definitely shift by shift, but also even month by month or quarter by quarter, it could scare you off. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to use Dave the same segue you used in your blog post because in your blog post you talked a little bit about Gary Loveman because he was recently <laughs> profiled in the Bloomberg article, which I also read, and I thought you know I I read it before I read your um, your blog post, but I had basically the same reaction, which I thought it was a very interesting piece um, on Loveman. What he said basically. To kind of distill it, he goes – talks a little bit about his decision-making process and basically says that he makes all of his decisions based on numbers and data and that generally he feels like that served him well. Uh, he can think of at least one major um, mistake, which was not getting into the Macau market. Um, I just thought that was such an interesting article, and it, it goes back to the, your point, which was you know, sometimes there's more to it than just the numbers. 
And how do you think that that how do you think that you know that message comes through with regards to looking at these kinds of metrics? I mean, are, should these people be making decisions based only on you know the, the results of these kinds of surveys and other analytics that they have access to? Well, you know, it's definitely an important part of it. You know, you've got to you have to have an understanding of the numbers behind the game. So if you're a casino executive and you see, oh my God, you know, they lost, they've lost 50 grand, 500,000, a million dollars in the box pit, you know, month after month, you know, once you figure out, well, it's not something going wrong in the dealing or, you know, something sketchy happening, you've got to realize, well, the nature of the numbers is that eventually this game will be profitable. That's the thing for as volatile as the game was, it was actually pretty profitable. Um, you know, when they were offering it, even the, the bad year, 2004, where they had a lot of bad months, they still made almost $10 million um, for the year. You know, in 2005, they bounced back and they made almost $15 million. Not, it's not that they got that much more handled. The numbers just evened out and kind of the, the puck bounced their way more often. You know, I guess you could say it hit the post and things go <laughs> more often. But, you know, they kind of got more lucky bounces that way. So – you know, it's really if you if you stick with it, if you can generate enough play where you're going to get enough action that the you know you'll get more action, you'll get more decisions. That volatility will start to go down, and the observed results are going to start coming close to your theoretical results. So it's kind of like if they have faith, they'll get there, and I think numbers can prove that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dave, are, are, do you have the uh, actual? numbers to to prove that house advantage is a fact <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you have all these numbers right it's you right here i mean you can't and th- this is empirical it's happening in the field you know i know people say well things happen different in a- an actual casino than they do in the textbook well here it is happening in the casino and you can see it happening and you can see yeah this works and sometimes you know sometimes things go badly people involved in the industry already know this i just kind of wanted to bring it more out to the public's view, you know, mostly for policy reasons here in Nevada, so people understand this is what we're getting into. You had a one line in your post that I really liked, and you said, <laughs> I'm going to read from your post right now. It says, in other <laughs> words, it's not gamble at our casino because we'll offer you a competitive package of comps to get your $529 theoretical loss per trip. It's, hey, come have fun, <laughs> which yeah. I just think was totally a great way to put it. Well, you know, I mean, kind of segueing back to, to the, the Gary Loveman thing, it was, it was almost like it was the Mirror Universe version of Gary Loveman. And any, I'm just in a Star Trek mood because the article that came out in Vegas 7 today, but like the Mirror Universe is the universe where everybody's evil and uh, yeah. wears really revealing clothes and is very promiscuous. Right. But So I don't know about that aspect of Mr. Loveman's uh, profile there. <laughs> but, but they're also very careerist and, you know, they want to – the way you would advance in rank is by assassinating the person above you, and it's very self-serving. It seems like it's – instead of being the kind of warm and fuzzy, like we want to help our customers, we want to you know, reach out and work for them, it's this very cold empiricism that I don't think works so well in a hospitality business. You know, Maybe it works well if you're talking about production, but even then, I think you, know, you look at any business, and this is something that also – I really realized at the Star Trek convention, the convention was a success because the actors, the people that, that the fans came to see were doing well and were doing their job well and were interacting, you know, and obviously they felt like they were being well taken care of. You know, if those people are unhappy, the fans aren't going to have a good experience and there won't be much more of a convention. Vegas and gambling, I think, are the same way. 
if your employees aren't happy and communicating enthusiasm and being good with your guests, you know, it is a hospitality business. And why would somebody come back? I, what do you guys think of that theory? Well, I agree 100%. I, I mean, I think that, you know, the, that's why I thought his that profile and some of his quotes were kind of amazing because they just showed, I mean, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's just what came out in the piece and that's not a, a very holistic picture of him. But it just – if that's really the way – the only way, the only prism he sees his business and his customers through, it, it seemed very much missing the human touch, which is – you know, hospitality is just the word itself. You know, it's the opposite of what he was talking – you know, what he was espousing basically. So with, with uh, Loveman, we're not going to get a discussion on whether or not the, uh, there's enough room for the cars to turn around in the parking garage because he doesn't give a shit. Well, no, he would tell you that he would take out his measuring tape and he would you know, prove to you that it worked. He wouldn't okay. say it's going to feel crowded. He's going to say, well, there's an extra three inches that you'll be able to use to maneuver. Or like you guys – well, you guys have both talked probably more to Roger Thomas than, than I have. I mean could you imagine Roger Thomas working for Gary Loveman? No. <laughs> and talking about being the author of this space and I mean you know how he talks. Language. Butterflies. Yeah. I can't – you know it's just like totally antithetical where you can't – and I think long term that's not really sustainable because you're not restocking – you know you're not keeping people excited to come there if you're just basically trying to maximize your, you know, maximize the yield, you know, that that's missing something, you know, people have to want to be there. Right. Um, speaking of Harris and Gary Loveman, um, and not to get too into this because the details aren't really forthcoming, but Chuck, you just posted something on your site a minute ago. Um, about Harris, what was the story all about? Well, the the word is out in the uh, financial papers that uh, Harris is uh, uh, applying for an IPO. Not the not the whole company, but the nine point nine percent that was bought by uh, hedge hedge fund guy John Paulson. Uh, was it two months ago or so? He bought 9.9% of, of Harris from Apollo Texas Pacific, and that group of shares is going to go on an IPO. Uh, so I wonder if uh, you know if uh, that this was all orchestrated. You know, they basically got Paulson to buy that to go make it public. I'm sure as time comes out, uh, as as time passes, we'll have more details about this. But uh, that's pretty much the story. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't read the story, so I don't have any details. But it, it seems interesting and curious. I mean, I, I don't know. It generally, in sort of in a general terms, it doesn't seem like a good time to IPO any company, let alone a company that's you know saddled with debt and is. It seems like it's still got a ways to go before it really looks like an attractive business, at least from you know in terms of its raw financials. Um, it, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm, I'm personally curious to read more about it and learn more about exactly what the motivations are. Well, Paulson, he also recently bought a, a sizable chunk of MGM shares as well. I think. Yes. So, he did. so this, so this whole thing kind of, hmm. If he's getting involved in an IPO and he also holds a, a significant amount of another company, I'm not sure how the the rules work, but it it. Uh, it's kind of questionable. It's interesting, but uh, you know, it definitely be something to watch and uh, see how it unravels. Um, let's see. Okay, so let's move on here. Um, 
I think next maybe we'll talk about um, something I wrote, which was a story for Vegas Tripping um, that was about hotel apps. Um, I'll summarize my own story. Basically, um, uh, with the popularity of smartphones like the iPhone and various Android phones and Blackberries and all sorts of uh, you know new high-tech phones, we've seen explosion in app stores and app markets, basically programs that you run on your phone. Um, over the last couple of years, this market's just blown up. It's become huge, and we've seen all of the major um, hotel companies, or at least most of them, uh, explore this market by creating their own applications and um, – you know, trying to see if they can uh, make a little bit of a dent. I wrote a piece because as somebody that has his own app in the App Store um, and also somebody that I do uh, I do consulting and I write apps for other people, and, you know, I, if I'm not thinking about Vegas, I'm thinking about apps. So this is something that <laughs> I, <laughs> I think a lot about, I pay a lot of attention to. So, of course, you know, as these apps – were, be, were coming out, I looked at them all with a, a great degree of interest, and my overall feeling is that this sort of first generation of apps that we're seeing from the hotels are somewhat disappointing. And, and I don't mean that in the sense that they don't work right or that um, that sort of thing. They're just, in my opinion, not very ambitious. And what And what we're seeing at this point is really uh, what I would call, you know, brochureware apps that are basically uh, dissemination of some really basic information about these places, but not really providing any utility. Um, and I see a huge market for potential utility for these apps, all kinds of um, all kinds of things, interactions that you as a customer go through as part of your experience of visiting these places where you could – you know, you could provide additional services for the customer. You could reduce the amount of time they spend waiting for something. You could potentially reduce um, your workforce, you know, through efficiencies that would be generated through these kind of interactions. And so I'm just disappointed that I don't see much of that kind of innovation happening. And to go beyond that, I, uh, I compared the um, – the situation to those surrounding services like Facebook and Twitter, for those that aren't familiar, you know, those are two sort of social type services. And part of their massive success, I believe, has been fueled by the fact that they um, they have opened up capabilities inside their platforms that outside developers can build tools on top of. So Twitter doesn't expect to be the only person building tools for Twitter. They they make their service open enough so that you know a thousand other companies can build tools for Twitter. And the result has been this huge ecosystem of crazy tools that nobody ever imagined using Twitter in all these amazing ways. And it's made the service about you know a million times more useful than it would be without all of these tools. So imagining sort of a future in which the hotels participated in some kind of a technology program like this where you could as an app, not only as the hotels themselves providing apps but outside developers being able to build their own apps or integrate their existing apps with services from the hotels 
And I, I'm just hoping that we see some of this. I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm really hoping is not that these hotels did their iPhone apps and now they have a checkbox next to that on their to-do list and that's the end. <laughs> I mean, I could imagine that. that depending on how some of these people yeah. see this stuff, they may now think that they're done. And that they don't need to do anything else. And I personally think that that's a huge missed opportunity. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm curious, you know, Chuck, you published this. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this are. Uh, Dave, I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts. I mean, I just I think it's interesting. Um, but I'm hoping that we get a lot more out of these guys on this front. Hunter, utility, as you mentioned, utility is an ongoing battle. It's something anybody who is a software developer, anybody who's spent any time actually building things that people use or use regularly, you're constantly figuring out ways to take what you're doing and make it better, enhance it, make it easier, make it faster, make it smarter, and make it better. Uh, Casinos generally, even though they have seemed to embrace these technologies, uh, I honestly – do not see them ever providing any kind of API whatsoever to uh, to third-party developers. It'll never happen. Uh, there's too much data that they won't want to share. Uh, they want to have control over marketing from what the pixel size of their logo to you name it. You know the distance between this, that, and the other thing. And when you incorporate third parties on their behalf, like the MGM Mirage Cirque du Soleil relationship, you have a whole host of other requirements that need to get in there. I, you know, I've actually done some work for Cirque du Soleil uh, before the Vegas tripping thing. I did some internet jobs for them and they have very strict requirements about how this logo has to be this size and it can't be any closer or next to or near anything, the way things are laid out on a page, yada, 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 yada. I don't see them ever having uh, the the freewheeling spirit to let a third party just kind of make it happen. You know, here's a feed of data. Uh, you set throw a couple parameters in the in the request, and then it brings it back to you. I don't I don't see them seeing it as such a simple. Uh, possibility well i would what i would say what i would say to you there is i i wouldn't be surprised to get a lot of uh no way in hell kind of reactions from people in the industry reading that article but there's yeah. you know there's a middle ground look what apple is doing with their app store it's a curated environment it's not like yeah. anybody can just post whatever apps yeah. have to be approved yeah um, there's definitely middle ground um for these sorts of things that i could you know i think that if somebody wanted to uh, they could make something like this work. Now, it, it may be the kind of thing that they are, there may be some some things that they'll just never give up no matter what because they consider them a competitive advantage or a key part of their brand messaging. Um, yeah. But I don't know if that applies to everything. I mean, you can't even book a hotel room on the Win app. I mean, come on. No, but you can use the phone. You can call them. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I mean, yes, you can, but that's <laughs> yeah. not enough. Yeah. I don't know. Dave, did you? Yeah. I know you commented on my on my post. I mean, what do you think about this? I sure did. You know, I think you, this is something I didn't comment on the post comment, but listening to you talk, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said labor and 
saving labor costs and workforce. I'm in the middle of doing this really big analysis of the last 20 years of casino employment. And if there's one thing that, and you know, if there's one thing basically the casinos will pay you a lot of money for, it is figuring out a way to cut labor costs. So if you know, you would say, well, yeah, by doing these apps, you'll be able to cut labor. I think that would be something that would get them on board right away. I think they also should look at it really as an investment, you know, saying, well, we, if, if, if we spend, and my response to this is based on having read the infamous Loveman profile about 20 minutes or so before I read this article. So I'm thinking, well, if they spend $100 million on IT in a year at Harris, you know, spread out over 40 or so casinos, how much would they invest in, you know, in this sort of thing? And I think it'd have to be something, you know, if you can say, well, yeah, it could potentially cut labor costs. It could increase your yield for people. They'll be more likely to spend more money if they know they don't have to wait in line for a half hour and they get out and just convenience. You know, I would think it would be right up their alley. You know, certainly as a company that's seen the benefit of IT on the back end, they'd want to move that out to the front end. I, I don't know. I, I obviously – I'm a realistic person. I'm not expecting um, these companies to you know tomorrow open up a massive to a bidirectional um, access to all of their uh, technology information systems. Um, I, I just want to start a conversation. I want people to be thinking about these things. I want, I want people to, to imagine the potential for how great some of this stuff could be. I mean, there's one thing that I hate. I'm, this happens to me almost every single trip I go to Las Vegas. I'm checking out of the hotel. I'm trying to use the TV to check out, and it never <laughs> works. It never works. works. I don't care what never hotel works. it is. I don't care if it's the best hotel in the entire city. <clears throat> Encore. <clears throat> it still doesn't work. So, hey, yeah. let me do that on an app. I mean, it just seems it just seems like there's there's some stuff that's relatively low impact, and I understand their need to want to kind of control some of that stuff and, and I speaking for myself, you know, I would be happy to get approval for, for that sort of thing on a step by step basis. I don't know. I think I think that eventually customers are going to demand these sorts of things, but that may be ten, fifteen years from now. I mean it, it's it, it may be so far down the road that they don't even care at this point and there's no pressure. Um Jeff, welcome. Yeah, belatedly I uh, I apologize. I had Put in an alarm for myself at uh, 4.15 when we originally set the time and I had neglected to go back and make it 3.30. So my apologies, guys. Uh, it's, it's fine. Welcome. We were just, um, we were just talking uh, a little bit about the piece I wrote about um, apps and uh, hotels that was on Vegas tripping. Sure. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Otherwise, I think maybe we'll, we'll move on. That's fine. I do. I mean, obviously, I think that uh, it would be very uh, prudent for all the for all the companies that can afford to to invest the money it takes to be able to uh, you know move move forward tech, technologically. So, I mean, I think that that's what that's pretty much the point you guys were making too. So, I concur. Yeah. I just one more final point on that. I mean, imagine some of these properties that are that are not necessarily at the top of the market. Imagine if they could differentiate by having an app and it doesn't even have to be opening up services to third parties. An app they build themselves that that would enable some of these things. I mean, if I could 
you know, leave the Tropicana and have the valet, have my car waiting at the valet because I typed the number into the app before as I was leaving the room, man, that would be something that every travel writer would write about that people would be curious about to check out. I mean, I just think, I think that there's an opportunity here uh, to even do some of the simple stuff to, uh, to really capture people's imagination about what, what's next because um, no one has really pushed the, you know, pushed the ball too far down the field yet. I think I think some of the ideas you had in your in your column about ways that it could be used, you know, if I were a um, a uh, casino manager, I think that I would look at that and say, hey, which what of which of these ideas could we accomplish? I mean, you know, some of the ones I'm not sh- I'm not as sure are as easy as others. Um, um, some of the, uh, I think there were a couple gambling related ones that I, I wasn't sure whether they would be, uh, easy to be accomplished, but, um, yeah, definitely the valet one seems like a no brainer and there's, you know, I'm sure there's, uh, a lot of other ones. Yeah. So I don't know. I, uh, I imagine a future in which I, um, can do all these magical things and never talk to anyone <laughs> ever again. Hunter, actually, I think you imagine a future where you won't even need to go to Vegas. <laughs> you'll just you'll just have an app and it'll just work. Oh, I, don't <laughs> I don't know about that, but yes, yes. Uh, I I uh, I'm dreaming big on this one. I know. I mean, Stoli most- Greyhound, Bing, there it is. <laughs> Crabs Table, Bing, there it is. Most of the responses were, you know, people saying that this would never work. Um, okay, you know, that that's maybe being a little bit more uh, realistic and practical than I was shooting for. It was sort of an idea kind of piece, and it's sort of lofty. I definitely understand that these things aren't coming tomorrow. Right. Um, but, you know, that's enough on that. Hopefully um, one of these future shows will be talking about the amazing new app that does all this stuff. <laughs> um, let's move on, and let's actually let's talk about something that, Jeff, you wrote for me, which was um, a two-part – uh, two parts of your column, um, Downtown Blues Part 1 and 2, uh, in which you know you talk a little bit about the problems that downtown is facing and then some of the potential remedies. And I thought this was interesting on multiple fronts. One, I thought that um, the piece was great and also you had some interesting ideas, but at least one of them specifically um, re- related to taxes, which I'll have you explain in a minute, uh, got some interesting comments back and forth. Some folks not necessarily um, seeing it as too realistic, um, sort of like my magical app. So <laughs> I, maybe you can briefly kind of explain what your piece was about, and we can talk a little bit about, especially on the on the potential remedy side, because I think those are very interesting. Well, and the, I, I set, set the... Uh second column up in my first column where I talked about some of the problems downtown and uh and and pretty quickly that was um focused on some of the uh l- the lack of investment in many of the properties downtown um you know underfinanced um or you know undercapitalized or disinterested owners who just aren't um willing or able to uh, make their properties relevant um, and, and a number of other problems down there. But um, then in, in the second part, I looked at a few things um, that could potentially help those properties um, and the, the downtown market stay relevant um, in terms of 
in terms of both Nevada and and the um, United States, um, and I, I think that the, the the biggest one is um, a way to get folks to invest downtown. And I mainly, um, you know, I think it takes. It certainly can't be just a um, governmental tax solution, but I thought that one way that you could get at least um, some folks to potentially be interested, and I'm not going to suggest that the biggest companies are going to um, invest in and buy or build a little place downtown, um, but it would be nice to encourage them to, and then maybe other operators who uh, would want to try and make money would. And I think that you can't just single out downtown in a in the state of Nevada. You would have to try and come up with um, a proposal that would benefit not just downtown, but some of the other um, struggling or lagging casino markets. And what I came up with was sort of carving out the Las Vegas Strip um, and um, the Las Vegas locals market. Now, obviously, this couldn't be implemented until there is a real recovery. Um, so we may be talking, you know, years until this could happen. But I think that the downtown Las Vegas market, downtown Reno, um, Carson City, Lake Tahoe, Laughlin, Prim, Gene, plus every other rural market in Nevada, whether I, and I include some towns that are growing and not quite rural, like Pahrump, but every other little tiny town. I mean, if you take all of those markets put together, um, they produce about a little, just just barely over 25% of the total state gaming revenue. Um, and what I th- what I suggested was that those markets could have their gaming tax rate reduced from six point seven five percent to five percent for new properties that are built after a date certain, um, and for properties that invest. Um, a certain amount based on how many gaming positions they have. That's every seat at a blackjack table. Uh, I for, I don't know how many seats they assign to a craps table, but it's probably like 12 or 14, um, and depending upon the size of the table. And then um, and every single slot machine. So for a small casino in the rurals, um, it might be that there's you know 400 gaming positions in a uh, in a downtown casino. It's more likely that there would be 2,000 to 3,000 gaming positions, uh, maybe a little less than that at some of those places. Um, and they and based on that, they could say you know maybe a, a casino like that would have to invest 60 million, 80 million dollars, something that would indicate significant refurbishment of rooms, let's say, um, introduction of, you know, two or three new restaurants replacing old ones. Um, one of the big problems I think downtown is um, the many, many of the rooms have just not been um, touched significantly. The Boyd folks have, Golden Nugget has, but when you look at Fitzgerald's to an extent Four Queens, um, and, uh, and some of the other, you know, 
less financial, you know, obviously the uh, um, Tamaris properties, the Plaza, the uh, and the Las Vegas Club, their their rooms haven't been touched in a long time, and um, so the way to a way to incentivize a new owner to go in and throw some money um, into the properties. Um, so that was the idea, and uh, yeah, I did get a little feedback from folks saying that it's not. Um, it's not going to happen. It's, you know, it's, it's unlikely. And a couple other folks, or at least one other person but who said, Hey, downtown, you know, has been doing okay. Um, the surrounding areas will, uh, will generate enough, um, interest that, um, the, the market's going to do fine. So, you know, I, my, my take is that, um, this is based on reinvestment. It's not going to change the, um, tax situation for any um, existing properties unless there is reinvestment. So obviously 25% of the revenue um, is not going to be diminished by, you know, um, 25%. I mean, when you talk about, you know, 6.75 down to 5, you're talking about a loss of 1.75 um, points um, or um I think that's that's just a little less than thirty percent of the gaming revenue from twenty percent, twenty five percent of the total revenue, um, and and that's only if there's significant reinvestment. That reinvestment would obviously generate a lot of additional tax revenue, be it sales tax, entertainment tax, liquor tax. Um, payroll tax for construction people and new employees. So, you know, I mean, and, and, and I am not a, a tax expert, but my sort of rudimentary understanding of the subject would make me think that this would be a, probably work out to be um, revenue neutral at, at, the, at the beginning and revenue positive over time. But um, you know that's just my understanding, and you know um, I'm not. I am. I make no claims to be an expert. But anyway, that's my idea about um, the tax situation on transportation. Uh, I I said that uh, you know they uh, they should get um, you know much improved bus system bus service. It's already pretty good from the strip. I think they need to uh, extend that to McCarran um, in a follow-up to a uh, to a reader who said that the uh, um, taxi rates are way too high. I, I, I didn't put that in my column, but I agree. I think taxi zone service is necessary so that folks can ride from McCarran to downtown. It's sort of counterintuitive. The kind of people who are going downtown typically are value-oriented, and and that's a good thing, and downtown's value orientation should be kept. But um, I think that it would be, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense that you charge people 60 bucks to go to a value market. Um, now, most of the downtown people drive in, but obviously – um, that's not true for people from Hawaii. It's not true for, um, you know, other people who, uh, and, and, you know, the Golden Nuggets customers probably, they probably get a higher fly-in mix than uh, all the non-Boyd Hawaii-oriented properties. So, um, you know, that I think that's a fantastic idea. And last, I think that it, it downtown really needs significant political booster support. Now, they've had a, for the last... Uh, 
boy, 10 years or a little more um, from Oscar Goodman, incredible um, support. And that needs to continue with whoever the mayor of Las Vegas is. And uh, I hope that some way can be found for Oscar to stay involved um, in, uh, and, you know, some people don't necessarily like, you know, some of his uh, sort of off, off the wall comments, but um, I think he has been an incredible booster for downtown. Um, and the, People need to continue pursuing improvement of the area around downtown and um, particularly the new Symphony Park. And and uh, all that is good for downtown. Um, so that's that's pretty much in a nutshell what the two columns are about. So I, it's funny. One of the things really spoke to me, which was specifically speaking about transportation, because – uh, I you know I don't visit downtown every trip. Um, some of it's just because I don't have the interest to go every time. But honestly, the paint, the sort of hassle and cost of getting there and back, especially if I'm going to be having a cocktail or two, is significant enough that I don't do it. And I am baffled by the fact that they don't have more transportation, free and cheap transportation, shuttling people to and from the strip, to and from. You know, the airport, uh, I mean, it seems like the cheapest way they could get people down there. Uh, and it's it's not really happening. At least it's not happening in any significant way that I can tell. You know, um, and the shuttle service is another. Now, I, I, obviously shuttling people to and from the airport um, could be a possibility. I know that the airport's usually um, sort of discouraged shuttle service and um, I'm sure the taxi owners would hate it and the taxi drivers would hate it um, but shuttle service between downtown and the strip is something that um, and and I think that the downtown casino owners probably have said well I'm not sure how folks would feel about shuttle service compared with um, the you know there is the deuce already goes you know back and forth between those properties for a pretty low rate um, but you know, a lot of other casinos in Las Vegas have had shuttle service that a lot of non-strip casinos have had shuttle service that touches on the strip. When Michael Gahn owned the coast properties, his casinos always had a shuttle that stopped at the Barbary coast. Um, so it was possible for folks to say, you know, I'm going to stay at the Orleans or the gold coast. Um, and, uh, um, easily get back and forth to the strip. Um, and it made those other properties a more appealing option to out-of-market tourists who wanted to use, um, you know, get a less expensive hotel room. Um, but, you know, downtown, one of the problems is that all those properties are relatively small and the expense, it would require sort of joining together like they did with the Fremont Street Experience you know, one one thing that um, a, a casino owner, and I'm not sure if it was Wynn, but I, I think it was talking, you know, maybe eight or nine years ago um, about the time when Golden Nugget was um, sold from um, when Wynn sold it to uh, Tim and Tim Poster and Tom Breitling. Um, when, and I'm sorry, MGM Mirage sold it after they had acquired it from Wynn. And I think... The, he said you should think about downtown even though the properties are not parallel and they all obviously all compete against each other but 
think of it from a consumer's perspective as being sort of a single mega resort. Um, and if you do, uh, you know, and obviously there's some outliers, the El Cortez far enough east, western, way far east that, you know, they don't, they're not really, you know, they're not under or near the canopy. Um, and back then the, um, the, uh, Lady Luck was open and there were a few other things open. But if you think of it as a single mega resort where that, where there's a number, of restaurants, probably the same number of hotel rooms as, uh, you know, a, a 4,000, 5,000 room, um, resort. Um, and all these properties sort of need to, uh, make sure that a lot of people are coming in and playing. Um, when you think about, if you think about it like that, you can see sort of how dysfunctional downtown is because, you know, there's, when they have, you know, they obviously have more restaurants than a strip mega resort does um and uh and luxor i'm i'm emphasizing you with about only four restaurants open anymore but um <laughs> the the they they closed company they closed uh, they closed another one and and uh it's sort of ridiculous how few restaurants luxor has but but downtown has um you know there's a few buffets almost every place has a coffee shop or you know, and and then there are there are and most places have a gourmet room to comp their best players to, and you know, Golden Nugget obviously has a few nice ones, um, a couple decent ones, um, a little different kinds at the uh, at the better Boyd properties, at all the Boyd properties, but in general, um, there aren't that many. Um, you know, restaurant varieties downtown. You know, you can get sushi at Triple Seven or at the Golden Nugget, but you know, in this day and age, um, there needs to be like every single kind of really good restaurant down there. And so it might, you know, it might even take cooperation, and it's hard to get that um, because you know, if you want really high end Italian, you got to go. You know, you're going to the Golden Nugget, but outside of the Nugget, there just isn't a lot. Um, and so that's something that I think would be a big boost for downtown would be to get some of those, uh, some of those different kinds of restaurants. So Chuck and Dave, I'm going to ask you both the same thing. So, um, sorry, I'm sorry to spring this on you, but it, what, if you could change one or two things to, uh, for downtown, what would you change with the aim of it to be, um, you know, improving business and it doesn't have to be anything sweeping, but just, even if it's something small, what, what would you change? Um, with the hope uh, that, that you know it might help revitalize the area a little bit. And Chuck, I'm going to stab you first. I, I think Jeff is right on the money with just about everything he said. I, I'd say specifically uh, from the tourist perspective, upgrading the rooms is the key thing right now. You know, uh, a lot of companies on the Strip, almost everybody actually, uh, got in uh, their room refurbs shortly before the shit hit the fan. Uh, Downtown did do some of that. Uh, But, you know, the Boyd rooms, I've stayed in a bunch of those. They're all kind of the same. If you go to any Boyd property, all the rooms are virtually identical with maybe a a different pattern of wallpaper here or there. But, um, you know, if if somebody went in there and decided, you know, Binion's, we're going to give that hotel a complete refurb, you know, and, and put some money into it and made it a destination, 
you know, and it was they could price it at fifteen or twenty bucks more than everybody else, maybe less than the nugget, but a little more than everybody else. You know, they pull themselves out of the pack a little bit. Uh, but in this time of economy, this type of economy, uh, and things the way they are, you know, it's 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 hard, I think, for any company to be willing to invest when they can't even keep the hotel itself open. Uh, so, I think I think refurbing the rooms, adding more. You know, unique dining experiences would would help somewhat, but downtown is targeted, or it, it works because it's good for the value customer, the people who like to play and stay, and you know, go to Vegas with, you know, under a four hundred dollar budget for two days, you know, and still have a good time. So if they start making things eighty nine, ninety bucks a night for rooms, then those people are just not going to even bother coming at all. So there needs to be budget options for sure for any market to survive. Dave, how about you? Yeah, I spent a little bit of time downtown today and specifically the El Cortez, so this is fresh in my mind. I think the one thing I would focus on if I was in city government is nuisance abatement. This is pretty much the broken windows theory of policing, which seemed to work pretty well in New York City in the 90s with bringing that back in Manhattan. So I think I would I would focus on that, trying to make people feel safer down there. You'll get more people. You know, it's amazing just what the addition of emergency arts has done to that corner where the, where the El Cortez is. You know, I was down there about noonish or so, and it was amazing how much foot traffic there was, which you wouldn't have seen a couple of months ago. People in there you know, drinking coffee, looking at art, doing all that. And I think when you get more projects like that, it's really going to take off to, you know, more than it is. So I think you really need people to feel safe down there, which I think comes through uh, different style of policing. I think also it's important to go beyond gaming. If you look at what's in the area there, there are a lot of law office law offices about maybe four or five blocks south. If you could get that crowd coming up to East Fremont, coming down to Fremont, more for things like business lunches and that, I mean, you would generate a really good incremental revenue stream when you're not going to have as many out-of-town people in there that will really help balance that load. So I think really it's a mix of nuisance abatement, making people feel safe, and catering more to locals and non-gaming. I think those are all good points. And I think the nuisance abatement point especially um, rings true. The last couple of times I've been down there, it's just felt like, um, I don't know, I, I definitely wouldn't say that I felt unsafe but it just it just feels a little bit grungy, and it kind of it definitely dispels that sort of like Disney esque kind of you know like this is this is on vacation in sort of this alternative reality where all I have is fun. It kind of makes it seem more like in the ordinary slummy downtown kind of zone, uh, and it it's it seems like it's getting worse, not better. Hunter, could I real quickly add about one of the and and and. Probably a down a, um, a downside of the way I did these two columns. I really didn't spend a lot of time talking about what's great about downtown, and for me, it all comes down to one primary factor. Um, when I when, when I want to gamble, um, and one of downtown is unique, and it's unique everywhere um, in terms of. The, in, in terms of the footprint and the number of gambling opportunities, separate property gambling opportunities that one has um, within a, a relatively um, confined space. Um, and I don't know um, what, if, if you, how far back you guys go with trips to Vegas, but um, I first came to Las Vegas in 19, um, 
81. And at that time, yeah, the was, golden I nugget. I was two years old. I was eight. <laughs> right, right. I was 11. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, had, I, I turned 21 in that year and I was living in Orange County, California. And the, the golden nugget was one of the best couple properties in the city, ranking right up there with Caesars and maybe what's now Bally's was then the MGM Grand. Um, and, uh, and, and the Desert Inn was pretty nice as well. But down, but Golden Nugget, clearly the nicest, best place downtown. And the horseshoe right across the street was, you know, probably had as much gambling action as almost any place on the Strip. Certainly as much um, ranking up there with the Golden Nugget, not quite as much. But um, those two properties had incredible foot trap traffic. Um, and you you know you could play at the Golden Nugget if your luck takes a turn for the worse. Walk across the street to um, the Horseshoe. Um, things aren't going well for a Horseshoe player. They might you know the the Four Queens was a lot more vital, and it didn't seem as small and out of date as um, then compared to what was currently on the Strip. Um, and the Fremont was also you know those properties were only you know, a couple decades old or less at the time. Um, and the, and the, and the strip comparison is what made them seem so much better because there really hadn't been a whole lot of recent investment on the strip. Um, you know, since, uh, the, the MGM grand had been opened, um, it was the newest property and there wouldn't be additional reinvestment on the strip until, um, until, the Mirage opened in 1989. So I would say, you know, the, the seventies and eighties, um, were, you know, downtown had obviously was at a bigger share of the market, even before, you know, obviously before that it was the market for, for a while, but it maintained its relevance, um, as you know, through the seventies and eighties, but the, uh, mega resort era that kicked off with the Mirage took some of that away, but downtown still has that. And somebody needs to be able to capture it in, in a marketing message. And, you know, I don't know if it's the LVCVA or if the downtown casino owners need to, you know, give them a kick and figure out a way to do it themselves. But for a certain kind of gambler, and I've got to think a fairly decent chunk, it's a great thing for a consumer to be able to, you know, walk out of Las Vegas club and, you know, in, you know, 50 steps be in the Golden Gate or walk across the street to the plaza or, you know, down the street, um, avoiding the uh, scumbags in front of the girls at Glitter Gulch and be at Binion's. Um, and uh, to me, it just seems like it, it, it's a sales pitch that could still work. Um, I know people in Las Vegas who like downtown for that very reason. And, I, you know, I just I'm not sure if that's something you guys have ever, you know, admired about it but for me i think it's a it's a real positive you know what bothers me about downtown sorry hunter go ahead cover bands yeah i hate cover bands it it it's just it just makes everything an inauthentic experience have like some young bands there's bands who would love to play in vegas they'd kill to play in vegas they might not be the greatest thing in the world but have some original young independent touring bands that maybe only the pitchfork kids would know about or people who read uh, you know those kinds of things different types of bands outside live and it's free you know you pay these they have pay- two stages there's no reason they can't 
do that on one of the stages. And then, you know, okay. whether downtown is pretty much either cover bands or, you know, for the, for the bands that are still maybe old, but too expensive, but, and then they have a lot of, you know, older bands, you know, guys in their fifties and sixties who can't, don't command the high rates anymore. I think that you can keep the appeal to their older demographic at one of the stages. And you're right. Bring in fresh, young, um, you know, happening bands that could play at the other stage. You're absolutely right. They have too much of that. I, I agree. I honestly think, Chuck, that, that kind of speaks to one of the things that I think they're not um, really exploiting as much as they could. And that's sort of this authenticity. Um, and that sort of ties in with value. Whereas on the strip, you know, it, it's all about creating this uh, really fantastical experience. It's nothing like any place you've ever been, whether you're, you know, uh, it, you know, at the Venetian or at the Mirage, these places that are just larger than life. Downtown seems like one of the things that they've always been very good at was being authentic, or at least historically good at, was being authentic, giving a good value, no BS, you know what you're getting, like there's, you know, there's no trickery involved, just this good, solid American kind of enterprise, and um, it's, you know, there's sort of this cheesification, and that's one of the, one of the aspects of it, are those cheesy cover bands, it's something that I don't like either, it really turns me off, and I I just, uh, I agree with you, I just think it's a, a total noise pollution um all right i guess i am gonna have the final word on that one um, <laughs> let's uh let's wrap it up because we're, we're a little bit long today that's fine we're gonna do our little sure bets segment here where we uh each go around and endorse some magical thing product service uh whatever anything at all um that we want to share with uh with the listeners so let's see. Dave, do you have something? Can I start with you? I do. If you're interested in – actually, could you give me like one second to punch up this web, yes. website Chuck. so I make sure I get this right? So. Chuck? Are you ready to go? Okay. I have something, and uh, I would like my sure bet to be a reiteration of one of Dave's previous sure bets. My lovely wife gave me a – for our wedding anniversary, a pair of Sanook shoes – just like the ones Dave mentioned in the previous sure bet. And hot damn, Dave is absolutely right. These things are quite comfy, super they're they're wonderful to lounge around on. You won't you know, they're nice, they're not all that expensive, very comfortable. Uh I don't wouldn't care if I got mustard on them or nothing, you know, but they still look kind of sharp. So that's that's my sure bet is I agree with Dave's previous sure bet. I'm gonna put I'm putting odds behind Dave's <laughs> previous sure bet of Senuk shoes. I I say you just make Dave a sure bet because I think that uh, <laughs> did, did the box say as recommended by Doctor Dave? It, it sure yeah, did, as as seen on Travel Channel. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jeff, how about you? I'd like to recommend, uh, and I, I saw this. I think it was linked to uh, from one of the uh, somebody that I'm uh, um, friends with on Facebook. Uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Green here in Las Vegas, he recommended um, this uh, this site um, that was, he he re- liked a story that was on Huffington Post about a new catalog of photos that the Library of Congress had posted, and uh, 
you know, I, I love I love history, and I particularly love uh, um, looking at um, some of the photos from the era, you know, before I was born. And I know it seems like that goes way back, but these photos um, <laughs> these photos are from the Farm Security Administration, uh, you know, a New Deal agency, and then the Office of War Information. Um, so it's the '30s and the and the '40s. Um, and it's color photographs from that era, and color photographs relatively rare. You don't see them, but the uh, these two government um, agencies had sent out um, very, very talented photographers, and it's a collection of uh, a little less than two thousand photos, and it's posted on the Library of Congress um, website in their prints and photographs online catalog, and. Uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the uh, benefits of being uh, less than employed on less than a full time basis is that I can dedicate time to something I never would have had time before. But I spent, um, you know, a good part of an afternoon one day um, looking through the uh, this um, Farm Security Administration Office of War Information. Um, uh, fo- looking through those photos, seventeen hundred and some, as a as a continuous slideshow, and you know there there are some that are um, you know sort of repetitive, but they are fantastic. And then I looked through the office, the Library of Congress's catalog, which I just was not aware of what they have, uh, of what they had, and it is. You know, it's something that if you have an interest in history, if you particularly have an interest in unusual photography, and some of it is black and white photography that dates to, you know, the Civil War days here. Um, there's there's a collection from some Turkish official, um, you know, sort of the the Ottoman Empire at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. There's, you know, crazy stuff from all over the world, an incredible array of photos. So I would recommend that somebody who has a little time to kill, take a look at the Library of Congress's online um, photo um, archive, and uh, you you will certainly find something that interests you. And, uh, you know, take a look. Um, I'm very glad I did. Um, I, that's that's an interesting one. You know, just as a, as a, to append to that a little bit, I saw that Life.com actually posted a bunch of formerly unseen, I believe, photos of uh, the Rat Pack in the late 50s from, uh, I think some of them were in Las Vegas too. So it's kind of an interesting adjunct to uh, to the Library of Congress stuff for people that are um, interested in photography and, and history. Um, Dave, are you ready? I am, yeah. I've got a recommendation a little bit outside the box. Um, as you guys know, I'm pretty much, for a big part of the day, doing a lot of toddler-friendly stuff. So here's another thing. It's a plush toy maker who's based out of Vegas named Sarah Flake, F-L-A-K-E, who sells stuff on her website, which is called Flaky Friends. It's F-L-A-K-Y, friends.com. And it's really cool stuff that I think some of the folks might like, you know, handmade little plush animals, and they all have these little stories. Uh, For example, the latest one she's doing is Lester the Giraffe, and his story that he grew grew up in a Mexican circus in Tijuana, 
And it's just kind of why it's, you know, so it's kind of toys, but a little bit kind of twisted. And they do, they'll do custom toys. So I was thinking it might be a good idea. We can invest and get some kind of Vegas gang mascot or something. Yeah, I like that. But it's just, <laughs> it seems the, like kind of a real fun thing. The donkey you know, from Tijuana. Something like that. <laughs> Maybe not. If we're going to get a giraffe, I want to get the giraffe from the Cox Cable commercial where the uh, the Russian uh, billionaire oh, right. has the miniature giraffe on his couch and gets a kiss from it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some – just to tell you some more of the toys, one of the more outrageous ones is they have a plush toy that's called Tom Selleck Sperm. Oh, my God. <laughs> don't think I have to go into it. It looks to be a spermatosa cell with a pretty nifty mustache. Wow. Um, so, well, you know, there's all kinds of really, I mean, it's not all goofy stuff like that, but there's some really neat stuff, um, and most of it is kid-friendly. So, cool stuff. <laughs> uh, we've got one. It's a big hit. We've got, a, we've got a, an elephant, not the Tom Zellick sperm, but a little multicolored stripy elephant, which is a big hit around the house. So, I wanted to give that my sure bet, flakyfriends.com, uh, or if you see it in any, if you're in a toddler store, Flaky Friends, some pretty, pretty cool stuff. Thanks. Um, I am going to – for some people that know me may know that I'm, I'm just sort of obsessed with like pens and writing instruments and uh, paper and kind of – I don't know. I love that stuff for whatever reason. And, of course, the tried and true um, Sharpie is you know one of the great uh, little markers you can get. Sharpie has a new product called the Liquid Pencil, which is um, – it uh, you can write on write with it like a pencil. You can erase it, but then after a few hours, it sets like a normal sharpie. So it's sort of this hybrid um, pen pencil thing. And uh, you know, I went went out and ordered some and got them, and they're cool. I, I dig it. So if you are interested in writing implements and um, and you're a sharpie fan like I am, then uh, I would recommend go checking out their new liquid pencil. Uh, you will never break a lead again. <laughs> It's very cool, yes. Does it erase? Uh, it does, yeah. It definitely erases, yeah. <laughs> it's number two pencil equivalent. It's. I'm looking at the package right now. <laughs> it's um, It's liquid graphite technology. <laughs> wow. So, huh. yeah. I don't know. I like pens. This is new from Sharpie. I would say go check it out if you're a pen person. If you could care less, then sorry. Um, that's it for today. Um, I want to thank everybody for being here. Uh, this whole Skype situation seems to have worked out pretty well. Um, I think this will definitely be the future of the show. I hope that um, the audience appreciates the uh, added fidelity. I, I think the, everybody probably will. Um, so let me go around the table, and you guys can tell people where they can find you. So, Dave, let's start with you. Where can people track you down? Sure. People can find me at diescast.com uh, or at unlv.gaming.edu. Unlv.gaming.edu. Or gaming.unlv.edu. You should start a four-year gaming.edu college. That would be a really interesting program. Yeah, it would. it kind of would be, but it would probably – be a pretty lean curriculum there. Where do you go? I go to gaming you. <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely enroll. All right, uh, Simpson. What about you? Simpson Las Vegas at yahoo.com. Excellent. And folks can also see Jeff's uh, um, Simpson on Vegas column uh, every two weeks over at uh, ratevegas.com/blog. Mr. Chuck Monster, where can people track you down? People can find me at Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas in December 15th. And, of course, all 
also uh, at Vegas Podcast and Palooza October 30th at the Flamingo. Correct. Um, people can find me at ratevegas.com. Thanks to you guys, and also thanks to Alex from the El Cortez for being a part of today's show. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody. All right. You too, guys. All right. You too.